0: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Andrew Lambert. Professor Lambert is a professor in naval history in the Department of War Studies in King's College London. He is author of 18 books mostly dealing with naval history. We speak today about his newest book titled Sea Power States, Maritime Culture, Continental Empires, and the Conflict that Made the Modern World. Welcome, Professor Lambert.
1: It's my pleasure, Charles.
0: Professor, what is the thesis of your book?
1: In short, the thesis is that there have been a group of uh, sea power states as i've defined them that's sea power one word um which means a state which is totally dominated by its relationship with the sea um it's a sea trading nation it's a sea facing nation and that these nations have been distinctly different from their continental imperial and military rivals throughout history it's the clash of civilizations, as it were, between Athens and Sparta, between Rome and Carthage, between Venice and the Ottoman Empire, between the Dutch and the French and the Spanish, and then between Britain and most of the rest of the world, between around 1700 and 1945. And that these empires, because empires are necessary, because these are small countries which create maritime imperial dominion. Not dominion over land, but dominion over the sea and control of commerce. Unlike the Roman model of empire, which is about territory and possession, this is about access to trade, access to markets, and only relatively limited amounts of territorial imperialism. So it's a very different model to the kind of one-size-fits-all idea that all empires are about land. Uh, The British Empire was never about land, even when it was at its height. Most of the land on the famous map of 1900 is places that nobody lives. Uh, The desert in the middle of Australia, the white desert in the north of Canada. um, These are areas that are completely uninhabited. They make the empire look big, but they're not particularly relevant. Um, The things that matter to the British, to the Dutch, and, and their precursors is the control of port cities, critical strategic island bases and the sea lanes over which the world's trade flows. And the, the thing that really distinguishes these states from their continental contemporaries is that they're progressive, they're relatively liberal by the standards of the day, and they're having very inclusive models of government, which mean that the the men who drive commerce, the people who are pushing the economic agenda and are moving towards a more dynamic future, have a say in how government is run. So. We're looking at empires which are run by oligarchies, by by, demo, by democracies. But certainly that thing over here we call the City of London or you would call Wall Street has a big say in how government is run, um, whereas most of the autocratic monarchies that faced them were about territory and prestige and the decisions were taken on grounds which were not economic or progressive.
0: Why do you begin the book with a reflection from John Ruskin's um, study, The Stones of Venice?
1: John Ruskin's book of 1851 marks a point where the British really begin thinking seriously about what decline means. Um, How is their empire going to come to an end? And they're looking back to other empires And Ruskin is doing something really very important. He's picking out and highlighting the importance of the creation of the Venetian sea power empire state and how critical the role of culture is in the construction of sea powers. Ruskin understands, and he he makes this very clear, that the Venetians made their own state they decided to build it in a particular way and to have a particular kind of culture, which was reflected in the unique and and particular architecture of Venice. And he argues that when the Venetians stopped having their own culture and built uniform Baroque Italian buildings, that they lost their way and that this reflected in many ways the end of their era of greatness. So he's calling for a cultural understanding of power his near-contemporary, Jakob Burkhardt, the Swiss uh, historian of culture, says the same thing. Burkhardt says that the state is a work of art. We create the states that we live in. And if you don't like the state you live in, you need to recreate it. States are not organic. They don't emerge out of the primordial slime and take a shape. People create them. And the creation of a, of a cultural model of the state helps to distinguish between the Venetians, the Ottomans and their near contemporaries in Habsburg, Spain, and indeed the Roman papacy, which was probably the greatest enemy of Venice, uh, of them all. So these, These terrestrial, continental, totalitarian organizations which are imposing their view on the world find Venice, which is happy to trade between worlds. The Pope excommunicates the Venetians for trading with the Muslims, That's the only way they can make a living. So they they willingly accept the excommunication because they're not Roman Catholics. They're Venetian Catholics. They've got their own church. The Basilica San Marco is not a Roman church at all. It's a Byzantine church. And it says, we're not really part of your organization. So culture is critical. And Ruskin is one of the great cultural constructors of the 19th century. And I also thought it was nice to open with a piece of English prose of a standard that I don't think any of us these days would even think of aspiring to um, the only danger is that people might expect the rest of the book to be written at quite that level and um, I'm not sure anybody could do that anymore
0: well the book is written in the very high level and your ang- your answer leads me to my next question which is what exactly do you mean by sea power culture and identity um,
1: so when we're looking at the word sea power. In the United States, you have a theorist who created an idea of sea power. He's called Alfred Thayer Mahan, the Navy captain uh, about 130 years ago. And what Mahan does is he takes that word that we have from the ancient Greek, the word Thucydides uses, thalassocratia, the power of the sea, and he splits it into two and he turns it into a description of naval power. Now, to have a big navy and to use naval power effectively does not mean you are a sea power state. It just means you have a big navy and use it effectively. So I would argue, for example, that the United States in the 20th century had a very big navy and used it very effectively, particularly in in the Second World War. But that did not make it a sea power. Uh, Most Americans didn't live by, on, or concerned with the sea. Uh, The sea was relatively marginal because of the sheer scale and size of the United States. It was a continental superpower uh, in which the sea was merely a vehicle for getting its power from the continent to other places. At the same time, in the Second World War, Britain is a sea power. It's a small, weak offshore island uh, which uses its sea power culture and identity to prioritize the Navy over all other forms of power prioritize the sea over the land, uh, and it survives in the Second World War because it keeps control of the sea lanes of communication, which bring the vital supplies of food and raw materials into the British Isles. So a sea power culture is one word. Thucydides and Herodotus are very clear on this. They describe little Greek islands, very small ones, as sea powers because they are wholly wrapped up in trade. They have a maritime culture. They face the sea, but they note that ancient Persia, which had the largest navy in the entire history of the ancient world, they had a thousand war galleys, but they never call it a sea power. It's not. It's a military power that happens to have a big navy. The centre of Persian power is inland, a very long way away from the sea. For the Persians, it's just a means of invading Greece more quickly than marching round the northern end of the Aegean. So they're making a very important distinction, and that distinction persists throughout history. The culture of a sea power state will be full of pictures of the sea. It will have great artists who portray the sea as central to images, not auxiliary or, or marginal. Um, the great art of of the sea that we have in Western Europe today comes from the Dutch. It was created by the van der Velders in the 17th century. It's, it's a masterful uh, Use of the sea to project the power of the state, a state which had no power on land. So it's a culture which is created, it's created by relatively small, weak states that use asymmetric advantage to push their position against large and more powerful states that threaten to destroy them. That's how the Dutch got free from Spain in the in the Dutch revolt. It's how they persisted in the 17th century against, in particular, France. It's how Britain triumphed in the 18th and 19th centuries. So this mix of culture, economics, politics, ideology is critical, and it's about shaping difference. What I want to stress is that just having a big navy doesn't make you a sea power, and not having a navy doesn't mean you're not a sea power. You can be a sea power with very few ships because you are focused totally on the sea, and that is the core of your state's identity.
0: What was the ancient Egyptian view of sea power? Uh,
1: It was a great nuisance, and the people from the sea, the sea peoples, were thieves, pirates, bandits. Um, They turned up with all kinds of things, and if you wanted them, you bought them, and if you didn't, you sent them away. The ancient Egyptian empire hired the Phoenician city-states to do all of their maritime business. It's a bit like using the Panamanian flag of convenience for the United States merchant marine. Um, You you don't actually have people who you want to put into large amounts of ocean-going shipping, so you you outsource because your central business is not the sea. For the Egyptians, the river was as far as they wanted uh, water transport to go anything else and they needed the sea because they imported vital materials across the sea but they were quite happy to outsource that so the timbers they used to build their temples uh, the metals they used to make their weapons and their tools these were imports and in exchange they exported a lot of things to the Minoans the Phoenicians Um, their relationship with the ancient Aegean is very you know it leads to the growth of um, classical Greek art, but the Egyptians are not the people who are carrying those things. They're, they've let other people do that for them because the sea is not in their mental world any more than it is in that of the Mesopotamians. You know, They, they don't see the sea. That's for the, the Phoenicians, the Minoans, um, the Aegean Greeks. They see the sea for very obvious reason. There isn't much land.
0: Uh, could it be said that ancient Crete was the first sea power state?
1: This is a great story. Um, the Athenians loved the idea that they didn't invent modern sea power in the way that, that I've described it. But of course they did. Um, the ancient Greeks didn't like the idea of too much novelty, so they wouldn't have boasted about inventing something new. They would have said, well, somebody else did this, but we've just done it a bit better. So the ancient Greeks... Uh, the ancient Athenians said, look, we, we didn't invent this. The you know, King Minos, he ruled the Aegean. He had a, a navy and an empire, and that's, you know, that's what we're doing. But of course, the Athenians didn't mean this too seriously because ancient Athens was a tributary of Minoan Crete. And if you know the Theseus legend, which is the core legend of ancient Athens, the Athenians paid the Minoans a tribute every year of 20 boys and girls who were fed to the Minotaur. And this isn't a model that you would celebrate, um, you know, being a subservient, um, sacrificial outreach station of somebody else's empire. So it's just a way of dodging the inevitable that they've done something which has never been done before. They've become a great power in in the the world in which they operate by emphasising the sea. And so, that whether the Minoans did have such an empire or not, we don't really know. They they were certainly running a lot of trade with Egypt, with Phoenicia, with Greece. Um, they're very important, and a lot of their ideas um, transmit. A lot of Greek words for the sea are of Minoan origin. In fact, you know the word "thalassa" is Minoan; it's not Greek. Uh, but did the Minoans actually have this empire? We can't be certain. We do know the Athenians had one. So for me, they, they get the the nod as the the, prick, the first of the, the great sea power states.
0: So you wouldn't uh, give that uh, description being the first to the Phoenician city-states?
1: No, again, the, the Phoenicians aren't strong enough. The, these are very small, you know, physically very small and politically very small states, a little more than ports on the coast between the mountains and the sea. They have no hinterland economically, and they're constantly being overrun or coerced by Egyptian and Mesopotamian warlords. The front line between the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians runs up the coast between Palestine and the Lebanon, and depending on where it is, these little city-states are basically trying to work an angle to remain relatively independent of whichever military superpower is dominating the hinterland. And eventually they get rubbed out when the Romans turn up. They just decide that it's not worth having anything independent and they just make everything Roman because they're the ultimate barbarians, really.
0: How do you explain the remarkable rise to empire of ancient Athens in the space of roughly 50 years and then in lesser time its equally quick decline and fall?
1: Yeah. Athens is... is is the best case study of the lot because it is, as you you stress, a really, really rapid process. Within the life of of one human, it it comes from not much to being at the very zenith, and then it collapses. The Athenians do something really important. They take a decision for a mass democracy, Uh, not the one we would be used to, but all adult male citizens, so a, a restricted franchise, meeting in public to make big decisions. This democracy is then persuaded by Themistocles to invest in a powerful navy, first to deal with a local commercial rival, and then as a response to the Persian threat. And that navy and the armored warriors who fight on board it then win the great battle at Salamis, which is the the critical point in all of this. The Athenians are leading the defense of Greece against the Persian invasion. And from that point on, they turn their relationship with the rest of the Greek world into an empire of trade. They maximize their naval power by wiping out what's left of the Persian fleet in the year after Salamis, and they become hugely powerful, and they start the construction of the Parthenon complex, which is the most obvious statement of their wealth, their power, their sophistication, and their will to dominate the rest of the Greek-speaking world, and to take parts of the Greek-speaking world, out of the Persian Empire. As a result, the Spartans, who believe in nothing changing ever, are petrified, uh, and the Persians are very alarmed too. And between them, ultimately, they decide that the Athenian Empire is just too dangerous uh, to live. And so Persian money allows the Spartans to, to buy a navy and defeat the Athenians. They capture Athens, they tear down its walls, they destroy its ships, and they try to break it uh, as a political organization, and ultimately they succeed. They take away the, the trading networks that make it rich, and Athens is once again just an ordinary Greek city-state, and the world's first great sea power is over essentially in, in one century.
0: Why was the ancient historian Thucydides so hostile in your view to Athenian sea power?
1: Thucydides, is who is, is the great historian of the ancient world, is an Athenian aristocrat, and Athenian aristocrats are not overly keen on democracy in a way that 19th century European aristocrats wouldn't be very keen on it. What he doesn't like is that decisions are being taken by people who work for a living, um, sweaty oarsmen, um, manufacturers, tradesmen. Uh, What he does like is that sea power makes Athens a great power. So on the one hand, I like sea power strategy. On the other hand, I don't like the sea power state because it makes people like me less important. And he also doesn't like it because he failed as a combat commander and was sacked. So he has that slight chip on his shoulder. In fact, it's probably quite a large chunk of a trireme on his shoulder because he made a botch of his battle. So he's writing in exile, probably in Sparta, in a country where aristocrats are much more important than they are in Athens. So, yes, he, rather like Plato, Plato loathes and detests the sea, sea power, sailors, and all of it. But Thucydides is slightly more nuanced. He likes the benefits of sea power, he doesn't like the political reality. So I think Thucydides needs to be read very carefully. People tend to just grab pieces of Thucydides and say, oh, he. He really approves of sea power. Only the strategic bit. He's not keen on the culture.
0: Can you briefly outline how Carthage evolved from being a Phoenician colony to becoming the greatest predecessor of Venice and England as a sea power state?
1: Carthage is, is a really important way marker because the Athenian Empire is essentially the Aegean, but the Carthaginian Empire is the whole Western Mediterranean, so it's a massive upscaling. And the Carthaginians have far less interest in soldiers. The Athenian army was was Athenian elite men in armour. The Carthaginian army is some foreign people fighting for money. And the cities of of the Phoenician coast were always under pressure from the Mesopotamian superpowers Babylon, uh, Assyria, Persia, and eventually their colony halfway between Phoenicia and their major trading point, which is Cadiz on the south coast of Spain uh, at Carthage becomes an independent kingdom because the home city of Tyre is now completely under Mesopotamian rule. So the, the Carthaginians take over the Western Tyrian trading networks, but Carthage itself is just a small city on the edge of a continent And the Carthaginians own almost no territory. You know, Carthage isn't a bit of Tunisia. It's a tiny little piece about the same size as Manhattan. Um, It's minuscule. And what you've got there is this absolute concentration on overseas commerce, dependence on overseas resource flows. You need overseas timber, metals, um, all the raw materials of, of your industry and trade are there. You don't have enough land to grow all your own food, so you're importing basic things like grain from Sicily and Sardinia. So it's an empire of islands and communications and and commerce. And that empire is completely different to the empire that it ends up running into, the Roman Empire of a military territorial conquest, which is run by landowning aristocrats.
0: Why did Carthage lose the first Punic War with Rome?
1: The Carthaginians lost because, unlike the Romans, they were prepared to to compromise. Um, All commercial sea power states are prone to make deals because they have no interest in fighting total wars. And they also lack the military manpower to persist in these conflicts. The Carthaginians could have fought the Romans forever, but it was very bad for business. And it was better, they thought, to reach an accommodation with the Romans and then carry on. Uh, this was a bad mistake because the Romans were completely untrustworthy and immediately broke the deal that they'd made and seized one of the key Carthaginian uh, outposts on Sardinia. So the the Romans were were not people who were going to compromise with Carthage. They were always going to destroy Carthage. It was a threat because it was different. They didn't fear Carthaginian power because Carthage isn't power powerful. They feared its money and its ideas. They were frightened of inclusive trade-led democratic processes, and they were frightened of a state that just might be able to hold together a coalition to prevent the rise of Rome to be the universal monarchy.
0: Was not Hannibal's strategy in the Second Punic War, in essence, a land power strategy?
1: Hannibal is critical to all of this. Uh, Hannibal Barca... um, whose family obviously founded not only Cartagena, but also Barcelona. Uh, He's the son of the general who fought the Romans to a standstill in the first Punic War. And he understands that unless the Romans are stopped by a coalition of powers, Rome will ultimately take over the whole Mediterranean. So his military campaign in Italy is not about defeating the Romans. He simply can't do that. It's about bringing together other powers Uh, particularly the Macedonians and perhaps some of the other uh, Greek successor states in Eastern Eastern Levant, to basically put Rome back in its box as a normal member of a multipolar world order. Carthage will be safe if the great powers of the Mediterranean are Carthage, Rome, Macedonia, Seleucia, and Egypt. In a kind of five-power coalition, Rome will never be able to do what it ultimately does, which is destroy Carthage. And he gets an alliance with the Macedonians, but the Macedonians are never able to come to the battlefield. So he doesn't want to destroy Rome. He wants Rome to be trimmed back to its normal size, to be reduced so that it fits in a a multipolar world system. He's the ancestor of all great sea power commanders. um, The Duke of Marlborough um, in in Britain's early sea power wars is a classic example of this building coalitions to restrain an overmighty universal monarchy.
0: When exactly did Venice break away de facto from the Byzantine Empire?
1: The Venetian relationship with, with Byzantium is, is very interesting because being on the very edge of the Byzantine world, they're really, I think, in quite a luxurious position. They're able to be as Byzantine as they like when the Romans turn up, that is the Roman church but they're remarkably Italian when the Byzantines turn up, so they're they're playing both ends against the middle. And the decisive moment, of course, is 1204, when the Romans um, when the Venetians take the Fourth Crusade, not to the Holy Land, but to Byzantium and capture it, uh, and very cunningly then get the, the Frankish warlords who capture the city to sell most of the offshore islands to the Venetians. So the Frankish warlords go for the territory, and they fail. The Venetians get their hands on the critical islands and ports, and they succeed. And the Venetians basically ransack the old Byzantine Empire to create their own network of trade, which connects Venice all the way through to Alexandria and Constantinople. And for the next 200 years, they dominate the eastern Mediterranean and act very much as a superpower.
0: Uh, Aside from uh, differences in longevity, um, how would you compare uh, the Venetian Venice as a sea power with Athens and Carthage?
1: The Venetians are much closer to the Carthaginians. Um, The Athenians were still playing with the model where you could think about having a powerful navy and putting a lot of resource into the army. So the Athenian army is large. It's not quite as good as the spartan army but it, it's by no means insignificant the carthaginians were on mercenaries and so do the venetians the venetian elite serve in the navy the venetian populace row the galleys and the venetian army is made up of hired italian mercenaries so if the venetians lose an army they just buy another one um, no serious adult male venetian would have thought about military service it was it was beneath his dignity um the navy was everything and the army was almost nothing so those there's they're much closer in in concept and you'll find with with the other the later two seapower states I talk about they both minimized the role of their citizens in the army their armies were relatively small and in wartime generally reinforced by mercenaries and allies they didn't think about having a very powerful army, uh, with one exception.
0: Was the agricultural turn by the Venetian aristocracy in the 16th century a symptom or a cause of decline?
1: You know, as, as you know, the Venetian elite move away from commerce uh, and, and see based means of, of productivity and open up. An increasingly significant Venetian hinterland on the mainland, on the Po and Brenta rivers. And yes, they do become agricultural landowners and, and proprietors. They become normal Italian aristocrats. And this is largely a consequence of the loss of primacy at sea. The Great Battle of Lepanto in 1571, the Venetians play a critical role in the Christian victory over the Turks. But this doesn't give the Venetians anything because their real enemy isn't Ottoman Turkey. It's Habsburg Spain. The Habsburgs and the Roman Church are out to finish off the Venetians. And the Venetians quickly switch sides. Within four years, they're allied to the Turks and the French. And their ability to control the oceans has gone. There are now massive military powers involved on both sides of the Spanish-Ottoman war. And Venice is no longer able to operate as a great power. Its trade is destroyed by the creation of a single hegemonic Ottoman Empire ruling the entire Muslim Levant from Egypt right the way through to Istanbul. The Venetians can't leverage between Egypt and Turkey anymore. That was their main trade advantage. So their business model shifts and the land becomes more and more important. And it's there to be used. They've, they have the land, so they use it but they are consciously abandoning the sea. The sea, it goes from central to being less and less important. There's a brief revival of interest in the sea in the late 18th century just before Napoleon destroys the Republic, but Venice's days as a great sea power really end on a very high note at at Lepanto, but that's it. And after that, Venice is doing its best to hang on, but the move to the land is inevitable.
0: You emphasize that uh, Venetian views of religion were heterodox, uh, but in actual fact, uh, in theological terms, was uh, Venice uh, outside of the Roman Catholic orbit. After all, we're not talking about, in the case of Venice, uh, Protestant views of um, uh, predestination and the calling. Uh, could in fact Venice be viewed theologically any different than, say, the Gallican Church in France was in the 16th and 17th century?
1: Yes, the, the Venetian Church was always distinctly different. Um, partly Byzantine heritage, uh, partly because it needed to be more flexible because the the, uh, the Venetians were endlessly trading with people of, of other faiths. Um, And they were trading into a Muslim world, which was also split by schism. So They were much more familiar with the idea that there were many ways of of having that exchange with your God uh, than the one single model that was proclaimed uh, as universal and and absolute by the Roman Church. They were the first to start to ask awkward questions about the Roman Church. Uh, They were excommunicated by it for trading with the Muslims. And they never took that as... Anything other than an inconvenience, they celebrated the fact that the Pope had helped them shape their ceremony of the wedding with the sea by giving them a ring to throw in into the ocean. But when it didn't suit them, they ignored what the Roman Church said so I think their um, their approach to religion was somewhat of a, of a smorgasbord. they they took and and didn't take whatever things they did and didn't like. Protestantism never really picked up in Venice because I think they were already quite happy with the way they were running the business. I think they liked aspects of their byzantine inflected Roman church, and they certainly liked the ceremonial side of it, which was very much enmeshed in the the structure of the state. Religious festivals are are a critical part of how the Venetians endlessly re- emphasize their unique and specific nature so they use the sea and the the canals for religious festivals nobody else does this so this is a very venetian way of of celebrating things building a bridge of boats across the parts of, of the lagoon and and then having a christian procession over them this doesn't happen anywhere else so i think the venetians are quite content with this What you now find, of course, is that Venice is merely another Italian city and it's a much more Roman confession than it ever was when Venice was an independent republic.
0: Why did Genoa fail to become a sea power state?
1: Genoa, of course, is a very important uh, sea power city in the western basin of the Mediterranean and was at one time a major trade rival of the Venetians, they fought some very savage battles off the coast of the Levant, um, and the Genoese won several of them, but Genoa was never quite big enough to grow into a freestanding sea power of great power status. It was never quite coherent enough, and the Genoese never had the same sense of of civic uh, destiny that the Venetians managed to create. The the Venetians put their efforts into celebrating their success in in art and architecture and and, and giving to the church. Uh, the Genoese idea of celebrating your family's success was to have a knife fight in in with the rival family across the street. Um, it was a much more violent and disordered city, and eventually it ended up becoming a sea power contractor. The Venetians. Um, carried on running their state, the Genoese became contractors for the Spanish. It's no accident that it was a Genoese who found the Americas for the Spanish uh, and that another Genoese put his name on it. Um, And the Genoese ended up being critical servants of the Spanish Empire because Genoa wasn't big enough to do the job for itself. So Spanish muscle um, backed up Genoese ideas. There's a great Genoese line where they said that gold was born in America. It traveled through Spain, but it was buried in Genoa, uh, in the Genoese banks. Um, So they made a a fortune out of banking, out of mercenary supply, and then they became one of the first great free trade entrepots in the modern economic system. They were an agile and dynamic sea state, smaller than a sea power, uh, but very much focused on the sea. And the cultural legacy of that can still be seen in, in Genoa today.
0: Why was the Dutch Republic's period of maritime greatness so short as compared to, say, either Venice or England? Yeah.
1: The Dutch Republic has a critical problem. It's founded in war, a war against Habsburg Spain, uh, which lasts essentially for 100 years um, with with some intervals. The Dutch have to fight their way out of the Spanish Empire on land. So it's created by military power. And the head of state, the Stadtholder, is essentially a kind of hereditary general-in-chief. And while you've got a hereditary general-in-chief and a culture shaped by a war of independence that was fought on land, it's unlikely you're going to get a sea power culture. But the Dutch Republic's economic success is based on overseas commerce. Indeed, it imports its vital food supplies, grain from the Baltic, fish, and its entire economic model is maritime. So there's a clash between the stadtholder, the army, and the city of Amsterdam, and the maritime sector. And Briefly, between 1652 and 1672, the city of Amsterdam effectively runs the republic without a stadtholder. It puts the army back to a very small size, it emphasizes the navy, it builds great buildings of naval power, it builds a great magazine of naval power in, in Amsterdam, which is still there as, as the Naval Museum, and this is the golden age of the Dutch Republic, everybody's heard of this artistic phenomenon, the age of Rembrandt, uh, the age of Vermeer, the age when the Dutch are leading in science, culture, philosophy, and particularly in material culture, and this age is the age of the sea power republic. And then something fairly predictable happens. Louis the Fourteenth, who hates Calvinists, he hates republics, and he really doesn't like the Dutch. Launches a massive tariff war against them, and then he launches a massive invasion of the republic. The Dutch literally tear limb from limb the head of state, the republican leader Yendevit. Uh, they restore the son of the last Stadtholder, and they then fight their way out of a major French war on land. And from that point on, the Navy, the sea, and even commerce are at a discount. They're not as important as. But the ideas, particularly the artistic and cultural ideas that have shaped that golden age of the Republic, move very quickly across the North Sea into England.
0: So, in essence, you don't see any alternative to William III's, for lack of a better expression, continental term in terms of uh, Dutch Republic strategy after 1672?
1: Uh, No, 1672, the Dutch have two options. They can surrender and be destroyed because the French will not do anything other than destroy them, or they can fight, and to fight, they have to fight on land. That means raising large armies mostly of German-speaking mercenaries, but large Dutch armies too, they have to sacrifice everything for their independence. And they succeed, and William then brings the English into the equation, and in exchange the English end up becoming the great sea power of the 18th and 19th century.
0: How do you differentiate, if at all, the nature of English or British as a sea power state from, say, Venice, Carthage, the Dutch Republic, or, for that matter, Athens?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's important to stress that the sea the power state is very much an English construction. It's already been built before Scotland comes in on, with the Act of Union in 1707. It's It's been in existence 15 or 16 years. Um, Ireland was never willingly part of it. Our, the, the relationship with Ireland was always fractious and the Irish always had other agendas which they thought were more important. But the, the English sea power state is different because England is insular, not in the way that Venice is. Venice is an island city. Britain is, is insular. It is able to defend itself against the rest of the world at sea entirely, and that insularity enables it to make a choice as early as the 1520s not to be part of the European state system This thing that's happening now, Brexit, Henry VIII did that, and for not dissimilar reasons, Europe was too big, and it was too overbearing, and it was interfering in the trade and interests of the English state. So Henry left the Holy Roman Empire, he left the Holy Roman Church, and he began the process of looking for other places to do business. But above all, he built a big, strong navy to stop people invading England, and from that point on, the sea power model begins to make a great deal of sense to the English. The defeat of the Armada, 1588, uh, Henry's daughter Elizabeth, the most effective fleet in the world, defeats the superpower when it attempts to invade England. Uh, it's you know it's a breathtaking moment in time. It's rather like Salamis. You know it's a it's an epochal battle in which a small, not particularly prosperous, rich or, or populous state defeats the great power uh, with remarkable ease. And that is the foundation myth of English identity. Uh, It's the story that sets the English apart from everybody else. The great power of the day came and we defeated them. It's the story the Athenians told themselves. It's the story the English tell themselves. It features in the English parliament in the House of Lords for 200 years huge tapestries of the defeat of the Spanish Armada with a backdrop to every debate on public policy. And during the American War of Independence, the Earl of Chatham said, if the French and Spanish come to attack us, we'll deal with them just like we did in 1588. And he pointed to this tapestry, at which point he had a stroke and died shortly afterwards. But the point point is clear. That is how the English see themselves at sea, powerful, winning this battle and winning other battles as well. You go into the modern House of Commons, there is Trafalgar alongside the Armada, just in case you don't know who we are. So that's how the the business is done. The English create this idea, and Scotland joins it later and can see the economic advantages of this oceanic extra-European empire. And Everywhere in the world that the British ever went, you'll find that you know, those things have been transmitted um some countries still have legacies of of culture and identity. Some still play English sports. Um, but that that's been an enormously powerful and successful cultural export.
0: So you would not agree with uh, historians like Jonathan Clark, who posit that eighteenth century England was um, quote an ancien regime unquote
1: no. Um, uh, it's a very interesting argument that Jonathan makes, but um, I tend to take my view of 18th-century England from Montesquieu. Um, Montesquieu says, "Look, you know, how did the English defeat Louis XIV, the universal monarch of, of the early 18th century?" And for, for Montesquieu, the answer is simple: uh, England is a great commercial republic. Uh, the king is only a figurehead. Uh, it's run by the City of London. Uh, and it's um, it's the modern Carthage. He says this overtly. You know, England is the new Carthage, and to his consternation, history does not repeat itself because the new Romans lost. Uh, Napoleon picks this up, and he's endlessly waving this and saying, "You know, you are the Carthaginians," and of course, he lost as well. So no, um, I think there's been a turn in in. English-British historical scholarship over the last 30, 40 years, which has tended to emphasize the near rather than the far. is tended to emphasize engagement with Europe over the imperial sector. Um, We we have a predominance of Germanists among our leading historians these days, uh, as if Britain was ever hugely interested in Germany, uh, which it wasn't um one of the arguments that many of them make um is that when the british talked about empire in the 18th century they meant the holy roman empire uh, they most certainly did not george iii talks about empire all the time and he's in charge of this empire Now, when when the war of independence breaks he's he's worried about the empire and that's certainly not an empire based in vienna it's one based in london so the english knew what they were doing they knew they were creating an overseas global empire and this was something they controlled. Europe they did not control, uh, and while they had to intervene in Europe frequently to keep it balanced, they did not want to occupy European territory. When the English win European wars, they do not take European territory. The only piece of mainland Europe that the British ever acquired is called Gibraltar, and Gibraltar is about as far uh, from Central Europe as you can get. It's a critical way station on the imperial commercial routes uh, around the world. So Britain is not a European power. It doesn't want to be a European power. It wants Europe to be relatively stable, balanced, uh, open for business, of course, and it will resist any hegemonic power that tries to take over the territory that we now call Belgium because that's the place you invade England from in the age of the sailing ship. Uh, but beyond that, the English are not overly engaged with Europe. It's that balance, that stability, the trade, and that countering the invasion risk. But beyond that, they do not mind who is in charge of what is now the Czech Republic or Poland. That that really isn't English business. English business is until the 1780s uh, in North America, and then increasingly around the world in the Pacific, uh, uh, India, India. Of Africa, the British are looking for all of their success in maritime commercial activity, not in continental military.
0: You seem to imply in your discussion of uh, Britain, England, and the Great War that uh, what Sir Michael Howard uh, termed the continental commitment was unnecessary. If, uh, if that in fact is your view, why do you believe that it was unnecessary?
1: The First World War is aberrational. You know, let's start with some, some simple things that we can, we can nail down. You know, when the war breaks in 1914, the British government is committed to waging the war the same way Britain had always fought a war. Command of the sea, control of the economy, uh, essentially business as usual, uh, very limited participation of British military forces in continental Europe, um, essentially clear up the world, control global trade, blockade the enemy, break their economy, support allies by all means, and end up on the winning side, but not at the cost of destroying the country. And for reasons which, well, it's really very simple. The government very foolishly gave a cabinet position to a senior general who then, without authorization, mobilized a mass army of of getting on for 2 million people by voluntary enlistment and the government then was left with nothing to do with this army, but send it to fight in France. But that is not coherent policy. That is simply insane. Um, Britain had no business mobilizing mass armies to fight in the First World War uh, against the Imperial German forces in in France and Belgium. Uh, they didn't even do the job that they were meant to do, which is defend the critical parts of Belgium. We let the Germans have those. And we we had an army fighting in the middle of France. Um, The French were capable of defending themselves the first two years of the war. It wasn't the English who kept the Germans out of France. It was the French. And by 1916, it was still the French who were doing most of the fighting. And throughout that period, they were backed by very large Russian armies. It was simply not necessary. It was not something that ever been prepared for. And the the key giveaway is the British never did this again they would happily back up their continental allies and add something to the balance but as soon as the french collapsed in 1940 the british abandoned europe and didn't go back until we had the americans alongside and the russians were heavily involved as well so no the continental commitment was written and michael i'm sure would would admit this now it was written at a time when britain's military commitment to nato positioned an army in the middle of Germany to block a Soviet offensive, all of these things have changed. So that continental mission, which he was justifying, uh, has disappeared. Nobody in Britain would now think that we should put an army into into Central Europe to do such a, such a thing. We don't have the army to do it. We're spending all our money on the Navy, funnily enough, building large aircraft carriers.
0: So in fact uh, you think that the UK would have been better off in the Great War following its traditional maritime strategy.
1: Well, you know, who wins the First World War? Uh, the United States. Um the whole of the, the whole of Europe rips itself to pieces and does enormous damage to it. its its economy, its manpower, its populations. Um The end result of the war is that Europe goes from being the center of the world to being nowhere near as important as it once was. And Britain suffers far more in winning this war than it did in any other war it ever fought. The only reason I'm here is because my grandfather was badly wounded rather than killed. And I know very few people in this country whose family didn't lose somebody in the First World War. It is for us the war rather like the Civil War, remains essentially the kind of defining conflict of the United States. The Great War is is for us the war, because we'd never done this before. We'd never mobilized millions of men and sent them into battle. We'd always hired or raised armies of essentially foreign troops. We'd supplied, assisted, and and encouraged the the, the Allies, but we'd not taken the main role. Even at the Battle of Waterloo, there were more Germans in Wellington's army than there were Brits. Um that's a proper British way of fighting. You know, you put all of our effort into the thing that really matters. And that was always the Navy. The Navy is the senior service in a sea power state. It's more important than the Army. And in the First World War, we reversed that. Uh, and it was catastrophic. Coming out of the war, Britain is economically badly damaged. And Woodrow Wilson's government thinks that they can push the British out of the way and take control of global trade. And there's a huge battle in Paris in 1919 about the future of the world. Will America become absolutely dominant or will Britain be able to hold its position? The outcome is the British hold their position, but it's temporary. And Roosevelt manages to finish what his, uh, his leader in 1919 started, and the British are completely irrelevant by 1945. They're flat broke, their empire is broken up, and the sea power state empire uh, is over and the world is now a much safer place for a different kind of capitalism.
0: Uh, why did you not discuss among sea power states Imperial Japan? After all, Toshima was the last great uh, naval battle in history, um, the only true successor to Trafalgar.
1: Um, Imperial Japan is not a sea power. Uh, Imperial Japan in its history between the, the Meiji Restoration and the, and the end of the Second World War, it's a very large continental military power with an enormous army whose primary objective is the conquest and domination of vast swathes of continental Asian territory. The Navy, however good or efficient it was, is only the means to get that army to the continent and to stop the Russians uh, responding. So the British-trained and and largely British-built Navy that wins the Battle of Tsushima is not Japan's lead service. And the battle that won the the Russo-Japanese War is at Mukden. It's on land. It's a massive military battle, and the Russians fail. Um, Tsushima is in many ways an afterthought. It's spectacular, and the Russians are so incompetent that they do get completely wiped out. Uh, The British nearly picked a fight with them as they were sailing round, they, they shot up some British ships in the North Sea. And the British Admiral commanding said that while he had the same number of battleships as the Russians, he wouldn't use them all because they were so incompetent. It wouldn't really be necessary. So Tsushima is a very one-sided battle. And Japan was never a... You know, a sea power state. Modern Japan is, is, is a serious sea power. It, it sees the ocean because it's no longer interested in continental dominion. It, it's changed its politics. It's changed its worldview. But Imperial Japan is a continental military power, which is accidentally not attached to the continent. Um, its agenda is Korea, Manchuria, China, um, not the ocean. The Navy was never that big Um, When the war ended in 1945, there were 3 million Japanese soldiers in China. The Japanese Navy was never anything on that scale at all, so no, Japan was never a a sea power. It was a very important naval power, but it it wasn't a sea power. The sea wasn't central to Japan's constitution, which was essentially a German constitution, not not a British one.
0: How do you see the future of sea power in the 21st century?
1: Sea power as a as a collective that belongs to the kind of liberal western order um is critical the question now is is who is going to lead that so uh, the obvious leader is the united states it, it has the the naval power to be the leader of this collective but the united states doesn't see the sea in the same way that japan britain um the dutch the danes uh, a number of other countries do and so that relationship is, is not quite as clear as, as it was in the days when Britain was the leader of the Sea Power Collective and, and also a great sea power. So some, one of the things that's, that's troubling some of us is the increasing extension of territorial rights out to sea and blocking the seas, controlling sea areas to extract resources, to, to deny access. These are things that states like Britain, the Dutch, the Venetians fought against vehemently. You know, the ability to limit what you can do at sea in the interests of land powers, essentially what the Chinese and the Russians have been doing for the last sixty, seventy years, is a serious threat to the free movement of goods, to the free movement of ideas. You know, the opponents of sea power today won't fight you with a ship, they will fight you with a firewall, they will stop you communicating. They will stop your ideas reaching their populations. Now, the Chinese don't fear economic sanctions. They fear having their their electronic defenses overwhelmed uh, and the population of China understanding just how different things are outside. Um, and the Russians uh, have always been very anxious not to allow the world to, to come into their world uh, to reveal just how badly run the country is. So sea power remains critical as as a cultural idea, as, as the mechanism of the future, as the means of connectivity. Its opponents are countries that don't want the world uh, to interfere in their internal uh, regime. North Korea would be a classic example. It's also the greatest enemy of radical Islamic organizations like al-Qaeda and IS, because they too fear this inclusive, inquisitive, knowledgeable, progressive world. They they want to turn the clock backwards, not, not allow it to run on forwards. So if we have a future, a progressive future, uh, the sea will be central to it. And the states that see the sea will be in the lead of that process. And the forces of resistance will be those that want to go backwards. Um, China has always been very averse to things coming across the sea. Confucius and Plato agree absolutely that the sea is a bad place full of bad people and nothing but bad will come of connecting yourself to it. Um, Very little has changed.
0: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
1: The really simple takeaway is that we must be very clear when we use words like sea power that we know precisely what we mean because far too often we use words and we assume everybody else understands what they mean so that's like that slightly um complex argument that sea power one word and sea power two words is fundamentally different is critical because everybody else uses them interchangeably as if they they mean the same thing they don't A sea power is a state with an identity. A sea power, two words, is a state with a big navy. They're not the same thing. They often have been the same thing. The British Empire had a great navy and it was a sea power. Uh, But its contemporary peers like Imperial Germany, um, Tsarist Russia, the United States, were sea powers, two words, but they were never trying to be sea power, one word. So getting that right breaks up a lot of confusion about how the world functioned right across history. And it gets us right back to the core ideas that Thucydides is trying to drill through the heads of his audience, some very disappointed Athenians who just lost a very major war, uh, and to get them to think seriously about the costs and benefits of doing this and the strategic benefits and the political costs which Thucydides highlights are permanent you know, Western liberal democracy emerges out of sea power states. You know, continental autocrats don't give you liberal democracy. Um, liberal inclusive sea power states do. So getting that, kind of, that set of ideas squared away and the idea that just having a big navy or even a big overseas empire doesn't make you a, a true sea power, that for me is, is the big issue.
0: I would like to thank you very much, Professor Lambert, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor.
1: Thank you.